Welcome back to The Wise Man's Page, the podcast where we read Patrick Rothfuss's The Wise Man's Fear page by page. This is page 455. To my left, the viceroy argued acorns to his wife. To my right, Malouin slowly tore strawberry pastry in half, her face pale as an ivory mask. Watching her flawless polished nails tear the pastry into pieces, I knew her thoughts were dwelling on the roof. Aside from her brief mention of the Edamara, the evening went quite well. I slowly set Mellowin at her ease, talking casually of small things. The elaborate dinner lasted two hours, giving us ample time for discussion. I found her to be everything Alvaron had suggested, intelligent, attractive, and well-spoken. Even the knowledge that she loathed the Ruh could not entirely keep me from enjoying her company. I returned to my room immediately after dinner and began to write. By the time the mayor came to call, I had three drafts of a letter, an outline of a song, and five sheets filled with notes and phrases I hoped to use later. Come in, your grace, I glanced up as he entered. He hardly seemed the same sickly, doddering man I'd nursed back to health. He'd put on some weight and looked five years younger. What did you think of her? Alvaron said. Did she mention any suitors when you spoke? No, your grace, I said, handing him a folded piece of paper. Here's the first letter you will want to send her. I trust you can find a way of delivering it to her secretly. He unfolded it and began to read, his lips moving silently. I labored out another line of song, scratched out the cording along the words, scratched out the cording alongside the words. Eventually, the mayor looked up. Don't you think this is a little much? He said uncomfortably. No. I paused in my writing long enough to gesture with my pen toward a different piece of paper. That one is too much. The one in your hand is just enough. She's got a streak of romance in her. She wants to be swept from her feet, though. Though she'd probably deny it. The mayor's expression was still doubtful. So I pushed myself away from the table and set down my quill. Your grace, you were right. She's a woman well worthy of pursuit. In a handful of days, there will be a dozen men in the estate who would gladly take her to wife. Am I right? There are already a dozen here, he said grimly. Soon there will be three dozen. Add another dozen she will meet at dinner or walking in the garden. Then another dozen who will court her merrily for the chase. Of those does end of the page. I'm Nick. I'm Jordana. I'm Jeremy. There's so many dozens, it's making me dizzy. <laughs> yeah, it's an awful lot of dozens. It's beginning to lose all meaning. Dozen, dozen, dozen. I can't help but wonder if if it's too hard to win back the reader. Because we are told rather than shown that Mellow and Lackless is actually pretty pleasant and chill and fun to hang out with. Um, the reader gets this rather frightening visual of Mellow and Lackless taking out her frustrations on the uh, on a, a piece of a strawberry pastry, literally tearing it to tiny bits. And then we are told that actually she's she's nice and fun and cool and a good hang. But uh, I I certainly in this read, I am lost. Like I, I am not won back by this. I would need a save the cat moment before I'm willing to believe that she is more than just a vile racist. I don't know that we're meant to be one back. Or is that the argument you're making? 
I, I'm not making an argument. I'm just making an observation. Because the way that I see it is that from what we've gotten from Quoth as a descriptor so far, we get a certain read of her that is sort of negative via the Roth thing. And then he's telling, not showing. And I think the the reason Rothfuss makes that choice is so that we are not convinced because he wants to make it look like Quoth is convinced, but he doesn't want the reader to be. Oh, I mean, I, I partially agree with you, Jordana, in that I think this is meant to give us a bad impression of her because we are shown her doing something bad and then told that she's, you know, aside from that, she's perfectly fun. But I actually think that Partly that is Quoth masking how her racism makes him feel. You know, he is kind of like burying that and putting it aside because it's only going to get in the way of him doing his job. So he has to kind of ignore it or not think about it. But I think that we are meant to be thinking about it the whole time. Like, you know, first impressions matter. And if you meet someone at a party and like in your first conversation with them, they say something you find like disgusting or gross no matter how charming they are for the rest of the evening, that's what you're going to be thinking about. It's going to color everything else you think about them. It's like, it. You know, this is not at all in the same league, but it's a similar thing. Like if someone tells you that they like listen to Joe Rogan, divorced from any other context of knowing that person, if that's the first thing you hear about them, you're going to have certain assumptions about the way that person acts and thinks and views the world. You know? I forget who Joe Rogan is. It doesn't particularly it's matter. It's okay. It's it's better that way. Okay. <laughs> but it, like you could say the same thing about Rick and Morty. Like I, we've all we have all here enjoyed the television program Rick and Morty, but because of like the cultural cachet that the most annoying Rick and Morty fans have, if someone you you have just met says, "Oh yeah, I love Rick and Morty," you might think badly of them. Even if you find out, like it might take you a while to develop a good impression of them because that's going to be off putting to you, right? And I think. All of that is to say, I think that that is absolutely a deliberate choice on Rothfuss's part. And we are meant to, throughout the rest of this seduction and this courtship, even if she never says anything nasty again, and I'm pretty sure she does say some other nasty stuff, we are meant to have an impression of Mellow and Lackless that like, this is like a nasty person, the worst kind of aristocrat, just like a bigoted, wealthy powerful person who masks what kind of bad person they are through a veneer of like etiquette and politesse. But we are meant to think of her that way always, even though Quoth has to seduce her. I think that is a tension that we are meant to be thinking about. And I just want to jump on your observation, Jeremy, that Quoth may be pushing down his own feelings. He may not even be pushing down his own feelings. He just needs to be a narrator. Uh, and as we know, he is famously unreliable. So this might be a sequence where he is, for the sake of telling the story, making himself uh, out to seem like he's in a better light than he would be if he's like seething about it the entire time. It may be a combination. It probably is that he, in order to do the job, he has to push those observations away. But it also might be that, you know, he tends to present himself in, in the best light possible. And, uh, you know, he certainly looks like a even-tempered gentleman coming out of this exchange and a professional. And it's it's also the case, right, that, like, Kvothe is a member of, like, a, an ethnic minority, but he also passes for not being raw, right? He has what they, what we call today, like, quote-unquote, passing privilege, right? If you don't ask him, you won't ever know that he's raw, right? So that presents him with his own kinds of problems because people are going to not knowing, you know, if she knew that he was raw, she might hide how she felt about him. 
right? And he can't, because of the social situation that he's in, he can't make a scene of it, right? He, you know, she said something really racist. He can't say, hey, lady, shut the fuck up, because, like, that will get him in trouble. So he has to push down whatever he really feels in order to to keep the social situation moving along in a comfortable way. You see. That is a frustrating situation. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Kroth's process reminds me of the design process. I think it's probably similar to any creative maker. The iteration, the making a bank of things that are strong ideas that you might want to return to later. Drafting, feedback, taking risks. This really feels, this might also be Rothfuss doing a little bit of self-insert, kind of enjoying having Quoth go through the writer's process. But it does remind me a bit of what I do. I mean, that's just me, you know, putting it I through agree. my lens. I like as a as a person who makes things also, same thing. Like whatever, what you just said also very much rings true. Like you go, you collect, you create. Yeah. And it feels authentic too. Cause like he's got a few ideas for like, for letters, but he's also just got a bunch of like fragments that aren't anything on their own, but that he's going to want to use later. And like, I definitely keep notes on my phone of like, Oh, here's an idea for a story. That's just like, you know, like a one line log line for a concept or like just like a line of dialogue or something. And I'm like, I don't know where I'm going to use this, but I'm going to use it at some point. That's like me and my 30 unfinished drawings that eventually I'll get back to. (laughs) Yeah. Like that's the point of a sketchbook, right? Like, Oh, I have an idea. I'm just going to jot it down quickly. So don't forget it. And I can return to it later. I also think it's very funny and it's intentionally funny when, you know, the mayor's like, don't you think this is a little much? And Quoth goes, no, that one's a little much. This one's just fine. Um, Because A, it leaves us to the imagination. Like in what way is it a little much? Is it flowery and romantic? Is it, is it a Juliet is the sun kind of thing? Or is it a little racy Uh, (laughs) in a way? I think it's a Juliet is the sun kind of thing. Uh, But you can read it either way. You know, and maybe Juliet in this is the sun is the first one, and the third one that he's pointing to is a little racy. And I also I must confess that Nick, I am becoming increasingly swayed by your theory that Alvaron is a homosexual because he just because he's so uncomfortable with this letter that he asked Quoth to write to seduce the woman that he wants to marry, either. He's just a very emotionally repressed person who does not know how to express affection and is uncomfortable with expressing affection, which honestly is also in character for him. But yeah, possible, although I would point out that he expresses affection for Stapes. Yeah, but in a but in a way that you can read as like a patronizing friendship, right? You know. Yes. Right. So what I'm saying is you can't like you can certainly read it that way and I think that's a totally like makes sense way to read it, but you can also read it as him being like a little bit squicked out by the idea of like, ew, you're telling me that I, I have to write a letter where it says I want to kiss a girl. <laughs> Gross. Mm-hmm. But also, yes, very funny. We don't get a lot of comedy on this page. So it's nice that like, there's like this. Just a I think taste. it's, I, I, I think it's funny. I think there's a, a fair bit of comedy here where we have the mayor who we recognize now as a frightening, imperious person rendered uncomfortable by the flowery poetry. And also, um, I think I've talked about this before that I read uh, moving lips while you're reading as a shorthand for this character is not a comfortable reader, which may not be true. And I, Jordana, you have 
you have spoken up. We did talk about this before, but reading it on this page, I don't think that's what Rothfuss is trying to do because the mayor, as someone who is like well-educated, probably he doesn't want to read as an uncomfortable reader. So as much as I also kind of, I like I understand that read, I think that that's not what Rothfuss is intending with it. Well, and also like that piece of blocking maybe he maybe he meant it to signify that in a previous instance and he doesn't mean it to signify it here because when you are like practicing to read something out loud sometimes you your lips move you know it's like you know that's not something that you always and only do if you're not a comfortable reader but it can but he won't be there are other reasons why you might do it too the mayor won't be reading this to mellowin out loud he'll be sending it to her right but what i'm but like what if he's trying to get a sense for how these words sound if he were to say them do they sound like his voice do they sound like he's saying them can he imagine himself saying them okay fine i see it i i read this as like in a movie when a woman presses her hands to her tummy that's shorthand for this woman is pregnant so this this is certainly something i'm bringing and not something that that like is necessarily intended uh but i thought it was worth observing here what if the woman who presses her hands to her tummy just has bad gas well exactly but like in a movie in a movie like rather like it's sort of visual language now and yeah she won't say to her boyfriend i'm pregnant she'll say hey honey and you know rub her tummy lovingly or like show him the little pregnancy test or whatever like in the same way but it's like obviously it's it's contingent on other contextual factors in the image. If she's smiling beatifically while she touches her tummy, she's pregnant. If she's going, ah, then she probably has gas. Well, but what I mean is it's visual language that is now so ubiquitous that a filmmaker needs to work around it. If they are going to touch a woman's tummy, like it, the commonness of that visual metaphor is such that, you need to explicitly say this is not what I'm saying. If you want to touch a belly in film, and what or I'm sort at of getting you at, you have to have you have to have other contextual factors to yes put it into context. Yes, exactly. And so I read this as the same thing when I see someone moving their lips in a book or or on uh, or in film. Um, I read this as like a, a context clue that has a distinct meaning, and there need to be other contextual clues to have it take on a different meaning, but that is something I am bringing. Like, I don't think that is as well established as a uh, woman touching belly to indicate pregnancy. Although I would say that nine times out of 10, I agree with that meaning of it here. Like, it, it, like I agree with you that if I see a character in, in a book who's described as moving their lips while they read, I assume that that character, you know, has trouble reading. Cool. We have a letter today. If there's nothing else. Bye-bye. on the page. This is a letter from the devil and Daniel. <laughs> Uh, the uh, regarding Wayback Playback, page 10 and earlier. Whoa. After listening to Page of the Wind on Spotify, which doesn't carry the first few hundred episodes of Name of the Wind, I've finally found the beginning of your podcast on SoundCloud. Uh, yes, new listeners, uh, there is a known RSS issue where most podcatchers will not, uh, will only take the most recent, like, 250 or so episodes. So if you want earlier episodes, you have to go straight to the source on SoundCloud. That's not... The same. It's not the case with all podcatchers. Some of them go back farther, but mostly RSS only digs back uh, two fifty or so, which is a real pain to the ass when your podcast is like a thousand episodes. Yes, yes, but you know, we a culpa, I guess. I'm sure you discussed these theories many times in subsequent episodes, but I wanted to share a couple of thoughts. 
Love the connection between Te Telu and Lock Lockless. This was the first I've heard of it, and I think it's plausible and very cool if true. I believe I posited that Telu might be an old language, uh, an old phrase for the name uh, Lockless, because Te is the same as the rune for Lock. I wouldn't dismiss the fact that demons are afraid of the name of God. From what I remember, Quoth tends to dismiss religious notions as bunk, but it's possible there is a connection. Thinking here of the power of names, some things know when their names are spoken. We take this to be in reference to the Chandrian, but it may also be true of Telu's angels. Martin, in a state of panic during the fight scene with the bandits, starts praying and names the angels, Andan, etc. Afterwards, the leader of the bandits, presumably Cinder, looks toward the sky and disappears. This mirrors the behavior of the Chandrian in Name of the Wind after killing Quoth's parents. It's possible one of the Edema victims prayed or called the names of angels before they were murdered. Stay safe and be well. Regards, the devil and Daniel. Mm. I feel like we have discussed this idea, but in relation to a letter that I think you wrote, Daniel. And we will discuss more of it because that scene is coming up in about uh, 400, 500 pages or so. Yeah, it's it might it'll be interesting. I, I won't do this because I do not want to listen to every single episode again, but it would be interesting to kind of go back and like re re-examine some of the things we talked about earlier. Something I would like to do as sort of a project is assemble a good list of like entry episodes or episodes that are particularly insightful. Uh, Again, I don't really want to listen to the whole back catalog, but listeners, if you have any suggestions for episodes that you think are particularly good or particularly good entry episodes, because frankly, I don't think episode one of Name of the Wind is a great episode to start on, uh, write in and tell us. I would love to assemble like a best of or a a sizzle reel of, uh, of our best moments to put up for new listeners. Yeah, I would argue that our listeners will know what our best moments are a lot better than we will. Mm-hmm. Include your favorite spoofs, goofs, riffs, and uh, and bits. And, and tiffs. Mm-hmm. And listeners, we'll be back with more spoofs, goofs, riffs, and tiffs on tomorrow's episode of Page of the Way.